Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, our guest is Libby Hinesley. Libby is a physical therapist, yoga therapist, and longtime yoga teacher. She specializes in treating yoga-related injuries, chronic pain, and hypermobility syndromes. She is also a person living with hypermobile EDS and recently wrote a book called Yoga for Bendy People, Optimizing the Benefits of Yoga for Hypermobility. The ebook will be released in May 2022, and the paperback will follow in June. Libby has been a physical therapist for over 10 years and a yoga teacher for 18 years. Her book is the culmination of countless hours of research and interviews with healthcare professionals, yoga practitioners, and hypermobile patients. Yoga can be a very controversial topic in the hypermobile community. Um, Some patients speak about the benefits, um, some are very against it, and even some doctors um, uh, have thoughts on the matter, strong ones. Um, And so this is an important time to point out that this podcast is not for medical advice and does not provide any specific guidance for any individual's health plan. Please consult with appropriate medical providers before starting or stopping any health regimen, including any regimen for physical activity, like yoga. Libby, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Carrie, and thank you so much for having me. Let's start with your own experiences with hypermobility. How did you first learn about your own hypermobility, and what was that process like for you? Well, you know, like a lot of people, um, I went through most of my life uh, not really understanding why my body seemed to be different from everyone else's. And I'm now in my mid-40s, and I was just diagnosed with hypermobile EDS a couple years ago. So even though I've always known that I had joint hypermobility, and it's always played a role in even how I understood my physical injuries as you know, a kid doing gymnastics and then growing up doing competitive tennis, I was always in PT. I had chronic subluxations of my shoulders and, and on and on and on. And, you know, in addition to that, I also had the fatigue and anxiety and all the other things that people often experience. So it didn't really come together in my awareness until after I had my second daughter, my symptoms really sort of just blew up. And that's when I started trying to, okay, figure out what is going on here. And that's how I discovered I had hypermobile EDS finally. So, um, because at that time I developed POTS and severe fatigue and it was more debilitating stuff at that point. Thanks for sharing about your experience. I'm sorry you had to go so long without um, knowing what was behind um, all those um, symptoms and everything. Um, But I'm glad that you found some answers. Um, And Mm -hmm. I assume it had to have been sort of an interesting process learning about hypermobility, given all of your experience about yoga, which has such a... um, I don't know if emphasis is the right word, but flexibility is, uh, to an extent, um, caveating, uh, a real asset um, in yoga. So kind of integrating what you knew from your yoga practice versus what you were learning about sort of the physio- physiology of your condition. Um, like what, what was that kind of knowledge overlap process like for you? Yeah. Just really interesting. I mean, it's sort of shocking to me that I didn't know I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, (laughs) because I've been a PT for over 10 years, right? But it just points to the lack of education for medical practitioners about these conditions. You know, based on what I learned about EDS in PT school, never in a million years would I have thought I had it. And that's a problem right there. And it's something I really 
I would love to kind of wave a magic wand and at least have PTs really well educated about these syndromes and they're not right. And so I have developed my kind of expertise about it over years in learning about myself. And really it came out of my specialization and real interest in chronic pain because I just found that that's what I was treating a lot. And so I really worked on understanding the neuroscience of pain and all that stuff. And um, as you know, that often the hypermobile person and the hy- and the person with chronic pain are the same people. So that all kind of led me in this direction to really realizing what was going on for my own experience. So yeah, and and also I learned from my clinical practice because in treating primarily injured yoga practitioners, I was by default treating people with hypermobility, mm-hmm. and I was learning from their experience and noticing, wow their stuff is just like my stuff is all the stuff I've always dealt with, you know, and even in my yoga history, I've been practicing yoga for about 25 years and a variety of different styles of yoga. But I went through about 10 years where I was injured from my yoga practice every day. Just, I had all the classic yoga related injuries that bendy people get. And, um, of course, I just kept doing more yoga thinking that was the answer. So I, I really get where people are coming from when they fall into that because I've been there. It's, you have such a fascinating perspective. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that your book will um, reach more PTs and raise that level of awareness because I was really struck by something you just said, um, which was that you were, a, you know, practicing PT for 10 years before um, getting your diagnosis. And I, I think you said something like, Based on what you knew about EDS, you thought that that couldn't be your, that that didn't fit you. Um, I guess, do you mind sharing a few thoughts on on why that was? Like what your perception of EDS was prior to being diagnosed and why you felt like it didn't fit? Yeah. So number one, I think that it's so hard to know when our experience isn't typical, you know? I've always wondered if my experience was typical, but it's, you just don't know. All you know is your lived experience. It's so hard to know. Is that other person as tired as I am all the time? Or does their body feel like mine does? And so in part of that is that lack of sort of validation and clarity from medical providers that I may have seen over the years. You know, I started seeing people for random joint pain in my early 20s, so many different people. And no one ever really pointed out that my joint hypermobility was probably related to that. I always knew I had it, right? I was in PT in high school. I knew about the subluxing shoulders, subluxating shoulders and all of that. I just never really knew it was that much of a thing. And in PT school, what I learned about EDS, or at least what I remember, was I had a really extreme picture of it in my mind. I imagined someone who, you know, can't needs a mobility aid, and certainly there are plenty of people who do, mm-hmm. but I only really understood the really extreme version of it, dislocating every day, things like that. And that's not where I am, but, and so I just didn't know there was a whole spread, a whole spectrum of how this could manifest. That's not what I was taught. That's such an important point to make. And part of the reason I, I guess I was struck by it is I once spoke to a medical, uh, actually at, at that time uh, he was a doctor, but he was talking about being in medical school. And he said the only thing that he remembered hearing about EDS was seeing a lecture where they put up a picture of a basketball player and they said, if you hear of this condition, check out the heart. And that was the full extent of everything he remembered about it. And so that really resonated when you said that about that really extreme picture, 
I've run across that too. And I think there is, it's so strange. There's both, um, you know, there's like a one sort of camp of people, or let's say one philosophy that that's really minimizing of what EDS can be. Um, and then there's another side that's really, um, doom and gloom that, you know, like a perception that it's, it's always uh, appears in this, you know, very extreme way, as you just described. And, um, it's so difficult to get people to understand that a condition can have such a broad range of, um, symptoms and, um, you know, your life experience, what injuries you end up accruing, that but the ultimate range of functionality and mobility can be really extraordinary. Like from some of the most, you know, successful singers, actors, performers, to people that are, you know, virtually completely um, debilitated by this condition. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's a really important point to make that um, there, there's a, there's a lot of different appearances of this condition, I guess, let's say. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of them are just simply invisible, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, and people appear pretty high functioning and all of that stuff. And they're, they've learned a lot of coping strategies and that was the case for me. And, um, to try to sort of do what appears to be normal for human life, right. At great expense for their health. And, um, that's what's so powerful about diagnosis is that once you understand a bit more about your condition, you can like start to take care of yourself and start to say, Oh, okay. My experience isn't typical. I have some, I have a special body. I have a different body and now I can go ahead and put into place what I need for my life so that I can optimize my health and well being. And now life looks really different and that's a wonderful thing. So it's really freeing. And I talk about that in the book, how, my process of going through lots of, you know, several different specialists when I was having more significant symptoms after my second childbirth. Um, And the specialists weren't able to help me. They had no idea how to help me. And, um, but when I finally got to the geneticist who diagnosed me, it was just like, I can't really describe the relief, like everything made sense. And now I can just move on with my life finally. Right. So it's so important. And Without that, uh, people don't ever feel that feeling that I had with the geneticist. Yeah, I agree. It's it's such a powerful experience when you've been searching for an answer for a long time. And I relate to what you said earlier about always feeling like maybe there was something um, going on with me that wasn't typical. Um, mm-hmm. But then you can kind of explain it away. Or if you look mm-hmm. at these, I, I like to say, I used to think of myself as a very healthy person with a lot of bad luck who just got a lot of injuries and a lot of infections. And now I see myself as not unhealthy, but, you know, not in the typical average health for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And with a lot of actually good luck because I've, you know, as, as terrible as a lot of the experiences that I've had have been, um, you know, at least now, I know where to begin to look for answers and, you know, seek out specialists that, that know this. And it just, it it makes such an incredible difference. I think, um, to have, to have a lens to look at these issues and not just see them as an endless string of one-off horrible inconveniences. Yes. Yes. It sort of becomes the unifying principle. Mm -hmm. That's how I describe it. It's like, okay, all the different 
weirdnesses, all of them now fit under the same umbrella. And ah, I see, I see the picture now. Yeah. And that too, even can be difficult because I know I've seen some discussion in the community recently about how there's kind of a trend of, um, you know, is everything related to, to EDS? I saw so, someone making a joke somewhere, you know, people say, oh, is thick hair related to EDS? Like just getting very detailed. And it's so, it's so difficult because so many of the things we experience happen in the population at large. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also, there also seems to be an increased susceptibility to a lot of the things that happen to the community at large. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard to parse out, like, is this related to, you know, my hypermobility? Is it related to my POTS, which is ultimately probably related to my hypermobility, it looks like? Um, or, you know, is this, uh, you know, about my neck instability? So it, it's, it's interesting. It, it's like, it provides answers, but yet like the state of the research being so insufficient. Um, it's also like paradoxically the road to a lot more questions, I guess. Definitely. No, I, I totally hear what you're saying, you know, and I think that it, the way that everything's related to EDS is that it's definitely the EDS is going to shape how we respond to all those other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And it's going to shape how resilient are we to bounce back from all those other things. Yes, that's it. And that yeah. and that type of thing. But, you know, when it comes to hypermobile EDS, I think I can't wait to find out what we're about to learn in the next 10, 15 years about what's going on. And I think it's just so still so muddy. The water is so muddy, mm-hmm. but... I can't wait for it to become more clear. Absolutely. Me too. Um, mm-hmm. Now, let's. I guess let's go back a little bit and talk about how you got into yoga um, in the first place. How did you find your own yoga practice? Sure. So I started taking yoga classes in college. My college offered a one credit yoga class and I thought that sounded interesting. So I took it and I just loved it. And, you know, I loved yoga for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that I was good at it. And that's usually the experience. And by good at it, I'm putting that in quotes Mm -hmm. um, because the yoga aesthetic, right, is about sort of achieving these difficult positions that require a lot of mobility. And I could do that. I had that in the bag. So I felt successful at it. And that's always a nice feeling. But I also really was interested in the philosophy part of it and sort of the the inwardness and the meditative quality and kind of learning more of a of the spiritual tradition. So I was always intrigued by that kind of stuff. I was majoring in philosophy in college, so it kind of went along with my interests at the time. And then I just kept taking yoga classes for a few years after college, um, you know, kind of weekly classes, that type of thing. And then when I moved to Montana for graduate school, part one in a whole different, whole different thing. I studied environmental studies and that was all before I got into yoga and physical therapy or yoga teaching rather. But anyway, when I moved there, there was a different kind of studio and it was a different type of yoga. And I got really into it and started practicing kind of most days of the week. And it was a more of a fast paced yoga that was very fitness oriented. And that's when I started having a lot of injuries just sprains and strains basically, and probably more subluxations of my shoulder and things like that. And I started having a lot of low back pain and sacroiliac joint pain and hip pain and knee pain and foot pain and, you know, all the things. And um, I stayed with that version of yoga practice for a number of years. And that was that 10 year span I mentioned earlier that 
my yoga practice was making my pain worse all the time, like kind of on a daily basis. And so it wasn't until I discovered yet another type of yoga when I traveled to India and studied in 2008 that totally changed everything. And that's the tradition of yoga that I have learned most about, you know, in the past almost 15 years now um, that I think is really helpful for a body like mine. Definitely. And that's such an interesting story of your progression um, into the more difficult kinds of yoga, which, you know, started causing injuries. And I think that leads kind of into um, the next question um, and sort of of topic. Um, There's a lot of controversy about yoga in the hypermobility community. Um, I myself uh, experienced it when I was engaged in in a yoga practice for years before my diagnosis. And um, it was really the only athletic thing I was ever, and I'll put good at in quotes, because I was definitely not objectively any good at it. Um, But far, I'm I'm so clumsy that I could never, you know, play any kind of like, you know, tennis or anything like that very well. Um, You know, I just, I feel like I have two left feet. And um, so at that time, um, I guess, particularly before I found like water, um, practice. This was really the only thing I could do. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, a lot of these people who look a lot more fit than me seem to be really struggling, but I could just get into these poses, no problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And that gives you a sense of self confidence. It's like, oh, I am good at something athletically and, you know, a sense of more presence in your body, maybe. Um, but mm-hmm. as soon as I was diagnosed, the doctor who diagnosed me told me to stop doing yoga because it was damaging my joints. Um, and I did, but I, then I deconditioned and I started experiencing, you know, symptom flares and issues from that. And so I I remember at that time, just really wishing that I could have found a yoga practitioner familiar with hypermobility to, you know, talk through my various, um, joint pains and muscle spasms and my, my unique situation and Mm -hmm. see if there was a way to do it safely. and, And, you know, in a, in a kind of split, split the middle kind of way, Mm because I didn't want to give up on it. But, you know, I wanted to follow my doctor's advice. So I did. Um, But looking back on it, you know, it's, I like I like I said, I really wish I'd had, uh, I wish I had your book back then, really. (laughs) Um, But can you explain a little bit or speak a little bit about why yoga is so controversial for hypermobile patients? Mm -hmm. Yes, because this is the backdrop. Um, the problem is that yoga is so wildly misunderstood in modern Western spaces. It's just, it's um, the way that yoga is presented in a lot of media and a lot of what you'll find, you know, in yoga classes out in the world is um, like a fitness approach to yoga that really emphasizes fast paced movement, hot, sweaty, um, and glorifies mobility, right? As if yoga is interested in mobility. It's often presented like a stretching program or a fitness program. And it's neither of those things. Uh, Yoga is not interested in your mobility at all. And so part of the problem that we're facing is the kind of quote unquote branding of yoga in modern times is so misleading. And it what it does is it sets hypermobile people up for injury and it also sets everyone else up for feeling like they're not good at yoga, right? Or they might be intimidated by accessing a practice that might really, you know, benefit them in their life. But they think it's about being really 
So they don't think it's for them. Meanwhile, all the bendy people are, you know, blowing it up at yoga class, feeling like, you know, they're the best at yoga, but then they're going home in pain, right? Or other issues. So it's a real problem. And we need to really understand what do we mean when we say yoga? Whoever says that, I don't know what they're thinking in their mind, right? If my doctor says you shouldn't practice yoga, well, I don't know what they have in mind. Are they thinking splits and headstands or are they thinking, you know, relaxation? Are they thinking meditation? So we really need to better understand what yoga is before we start asking whether it's good or bad for bendy people. That's such an important point. And it echoes what we were just talking about earlier, how many medical professionals have such an extreme view of EDS, right? Mm -hmm. It's like these, and, and in a lot of ways, I mean, our society moves so fast. There's so much information that professionals um, need to know to really be able to treat their patients. And so it does seem like these caricatures or, or these extreme examples end up what sticks in people's mind, like with yoga either being, you know, no pain, no gain, like it's a total um, P90X workout, or it's, you know, thinking of yin yoga and like a very relaxed practice. And so getting that clarity and explaining to people exactly what it is, is so incredibly important, because that's where you can tease out the nuance of like, okay, and maybe pick and choose, okay, this part works for me, you know, this position is going to put me at higher risk, you know, that kind of just more individual uh, approach to the practice, which my understanding is that even though there are like, you know, um, sequences of, of yoga, that it's sort of designed to be um, personalized as well. Is that, I guess, is that a fair description? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's the thing we have to ask, you know, how do we use the tools that yoga has to offer in a way that supports a hypermobile practitioner? That's the question. So the question kind of gets backwards in uh, our sort of cultural narrative about yoga. And it is, how can I make myself good at yoga? Right. As if yoga is a certain thing out here. And usually that means uh, how can I pretzel my body up and achieve these really challenging postures um, for their own sake? right? It becomes about asana performance, which is not yoga's interest at all. Um, but instead of asking, how can I make myself kind of quote, good at yoga? The question really needs to be, how can I make yoga really good for me, good at me, um, based on my needs and my unique qualities in my body, I need to tailor it to those needs so that it supports me, not just doesn't injure me. And that's part of why I wrote this book is that too often the conversation around yoga and hypermobility ends with how do we avoid injury? And that's an important conversation, but that's usually the end of the story. And there's a bigger conversation in my mind, which is how can yoga really benefit these people? Absolutely. That's such an important um, distinction to make. And I think um, you know, like you just made the point earlier, the way that it's set up now, it creates a dynamic where hypermobile people can go and think, hey, I'm actually good at something like me. Mm -hmm. And then the other people around them think, oh, I'm bad at this. And they're discouraged. And that's and then the hypermobile people are going home, you know, delayed onset mus muscle soreness, you know, two weeks right. later, they're like limping around and, and the people in the yoga class don't see that part, obviously. And so yeah. it, it's very interesting, too, because 
so many of the athletic endeavors in our culture are so competitive, you know, mm-hmm. trying, trying to get, you know, run a race or, you know, compete against an opponent. And I've, I've long thought that yoga is something that's really about your relationship with yourself. And mm-hmm. it's not a straight line, like you're, you're climbing the mountain to be, you know, to win Wimbledon or something. It's like, how do you adapt this practice to suit you where you're at and tailor it based on your experience? Exactly. Yep, exactly. And that is what yoga is interested in. It's interested in you developing a relationship with yourself. And through that, perhaps with the divine, you know, whatever kind of way you conceptualize that. Mm -hmm. But really it's about you getting to know your, your deepest self. And when you understand who you are, you can understand how to be in the world. That's the idea. Very well said. I, I feel like I should just screen grab that quote for the the, the um, episode here. That's um, that's really well said. Um, so, how did you ultimately decide to write the book Yoga for Bendy People, and what was that process like? How did you approach such a complicated subject that people already come to the table with so many preconceived notions on? Yeah, well, I just found myself really getting so into researching um, hypermobility and and seeing this as such a problem in the yoga community because I trained yoga te- I still train yoga teachers but I was really heavily involved with some teacher training programs locally for many years about a decade and um, I would kind of be you know saying my piece about my one little piece in the big pr- training program about this issue, I'd bring it up a lot because a lot of the teacher trainees were demonstrating obvious, you know, generalized joint hypermobility. And um, that's why they thought they should become a teacher because they were so good at yoga, you know? And so the people who end up becoming yoga teachers, I think are even more likely to have hypermobility syndromes because that's, they've sort of been elevated. They've had a lot of encouragement to say, wow, you're great. You could, you should pursue being a teacher that type of thing. And I don't want to discount that because it's important for people to feel some physical mastery and, you know, to feel successful in activity. I don't want to downplay that, but it's a little bit misplaced in this, in this case. So just in training yoga teachers, I was kind of having some just moral dilemmas about it, honestly. And I wanted to try to educate people in the yoga world a little bit more about this. Let's understand hypermobility syndromes, at least as far as they are understood so far. And then really understand what yoga offers an opportunity because I got tired of the conversation being about how to avoid injury. Like you, it's because it sort of means, well, you can still do this idea of yoga over here if you do, you know, bend your elbows a little bit or something like that, right? Um, so that, or, you know, don't dislocate your shoulder. But it wasn't really honoring the unbelievable, rich, um, resource that the yoga tradition really has to offer. That makes a lot of sense. And so I thought, well, I'll write a book. And it's so great. You did. You really, you really break it down um, into very, you know, understandable terms. And um, it, you know, it's such a, it's such a great endeavor for you to, to notice what was going on and and to want to kind of set the record straight, I guess, uh, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better phrase um because yeah this is sort of a pet issue of mine too i wonder you know we 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 all tend to seek and fall into the things that we're good at or you know the things that kind of speak to us 
And then um, with this hyper competitive um, environment that we live in, you know, it, do we then end up, you know, making our joints more lax by sort of leaning into it? And are there ways to strengthen them and not just necessarily become more and more, you know, hypermobile? Like I think a lot about the interaction between our environment and the way we use our body and then ultimately what shows up physically, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's so great that you, um, broke this down. And, but that being said, not just to focus on the injury part, cause that's where so much of it is. Like, how do you, how do you, um, sell the, sell the positive, well not sell, but how do you speak to the positive aspects of the practice, um, in context with you mm-hmm. know the potential for avoiding injury? Like someone who's just had surgery, it might be a different conversation than someone who's starting out. Like, I guess like mm-hmm. definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the second section of your book, Asana for Hypermobile People. Uh, First, can you explain for our listeners just a little bit about what Asana means and then go into a bit of detail about what you see as the potential role of yoga for some hypermobile patients? I mean, obviously, there's some patients who are very severely impacted or probably not good candidates. Um, But when it comes to the spectrum of hypermobility, how do you envision the role of yoga? Sure. So asana is just one part of the whole of yoga tradition, which refers to practicing physical posture. So that's all that means. And usually when we think of yoga in modern times, we think of asana practice, right? We envision people doing physical postures, but that's really one little part of the yoga tradition. And there are eight limbs of yoga and asana is just one of those eight, eight limbs. So it's really, it's just, we've just focused so much and just obsessed about asana and made asana about performance and fitness. And that's where we sort of went sideways in, in my view. And that's again, what set us up for problems with the bendy people too. So in that part of the book, I do talk about some ways to approach asana practice that number one, won't wreck your body. And number two, will actually support your body. And certainly, you know, you make a good point it depends on what's going on with your particular condition. And I would say for anyone wanting to start a yoga practice, a good place to start would be with some private work with your physical therapist who understands your condition as well. And, you know, tailor it to your specific needs and where you are with all that. And so it's going to look very different for different people, of course. But the basic principles with asana practice that I talk about are, uh, number one, smaller movement, and number two, slower movements. Those are the big ones. So just varying the range of motion. Let's get out of this idea that there's only zero and a hundred and let's start exploring all of the in-between places in movement. If we are thinking about a yoga posture as a fixed shape, we're thinking about sort of the end result, the the hundred percent version of it. Well, we could also do a 25% version of it or a 50% version of it, right? Or 75% version. We have all this freedom to explore this movement without ever getting to the end range. And so that's one of those principles. Not only does exploring mid ranges um, bring us out of the injury zone for most of us, but it also helps us finally grow some proprioceptive sense, right? If you ask me to go 50% into a movement, well, for most of us, uh, bendy people would be like, oh, I have no idea how to find that. I only know I even have a body when I get to end range, <laughs> right? Because 
I don't really feel anything. I don't have that um, refined sense of proprioception, perhaps. I know a lot of us don't. And sometimes the sensory experience of a hypermobile person is that they really only feel anything when they get way out here to end range. But with practice, we can learn to feel more subtle sensations earlier in the range, and we can learn what it feels like to only go halfway, learn what it feels like to go 75% and, and all of that. And we can use those yoga postures for that for that type of practice. And sometimes we need external feedback because we don't sense as well inside of our bodies where we are. And so that's where um, some somebody helping us with external feedback or even a mirror. I mean, I'm not usually a fan of mirrors, but for the proprioceptive learning, they can be really helpful. So that's one thing. And then the slow movement is, you know, in order to start learning how to pick up on more subtle information coming from the body, we have to slow down. Bendy people love momentum. And that's why you'll see them. They're flipping back and forth, you know, from one posture to the next and just momentum, you know, themselves around the yoga mat because it's easy. Mm -hmm. But what's not easy for the bendy person is motor control. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to move slowly from point A to point B. And that's what we need to practice. So smaller movements, slower movements. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, And it's certainly consistent with what I've seen and experienced. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to do yoga postures. And one way is static. You just take a take a shape and you hang out there. And another way is dynamic, where you move into the shape and then you move out of it. And so the different styles of asana practice are going to, you know, play a role in, well, how do you how do you modify that style of practice for the bindi practitioner? Right. So if it's a static type of practice where you hold postures for a long time, then you're going to practice those at different points in the range. You know, not way out here just at end range, but come back and let's practice it at different points. That way we also build strength and stability throughout the range, which is important. But if you have more of a dynamic practice that's moving, let's say you're moving with the breath in and out of postures or from one to the next, then we slow it way down and modify the range of motion because motor control you know, we develop motor control best at mid ranges. And it's pretty rare that I work with a hypermobile person, myself included, who has really good motor control in mid ranges, much less motor control at end ranges. So we really have to start by reining in the range of motion, containing the movement, develop some control there, and then maybe expand the range that we can control over time. That makes a lot of sense. And I've long wondered because I've heard that um, all people like to go to the end range of their joints, um, that it's a way of kind of, I don't know, appeasing your sense of proprioception and that part of your brain mm-hmm. that detects that. And I've thought, well, you know, it is can yoga still be beneficial if you're not getting that um, satisfaction or that sort of immediate um, sensation from going to end range. But it's so interesting to hear about how you've thought about this and how by learning to practice within a smaller range and going slower, you can retrain, I don't know, either your body, your mind, or both um, to appreciate that that sensation as well. Exactly. It's really a sensory training in a way. And um, you're right that there's something so satisfying about going to end range because it's like, oh, I feel my body. Mm-hmm. And that 
embodiment is important. We need to know where our edges are. You know, it's hard for bendy people to really identify where is the boundary between my body and the rest of the world. And the only way I feel it is by going to that end range and getting those mechanoreceptors in my connective tissue all stimulated, right? Telling my brain where I am. And um, I need to train that whole system to sense where I am sooner so that I'm not in injury zone by the time I actually find that I'm in a body. You know what I mean? So that we're not having this out-of-body experience, um, but we can find our body sooner and can really find a sense of containment and stability in it and then carry that with us as we explore a larger range that makes sense for us functionally. So definitely. And the other thing that I talk about in the book is um, finding that, like kind of scratching that itch in a different way. So I have a chapter on self-massage in there. It's not like a traditional yoga technique, but I had to throw it in because it's been so important for me and for the people I work with at um, providing a sensory input to the body so that you know where you are and you kind of scratch that tension itch, that feeling of tightness that wants to be scratched. Well, you can do it with self-massage instead of stretching. And I find that to be a really um, nice alternative because I, I want to scratch that itch too all the time. That's why I've loved yoga for so long. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't loved me back, you know, all, all along the way. It's loving me back now, but you know, it feels good in the moment to scratch that itch. But now I do that um, with therapy balls instead. And so I don't have to go to my end range in order to feel like I'm releasing some of that chronic muscle tension that most of us are going to have, you know, that goes along with joint instability. Yeah, I love how the third section of your book is called Beyond Asana, and it touches on these fascinating topics like self-massage and calming the central nervous system. Um, I'm wondering if you have specific tips for self-massage or if it's really an individual practice. It is. um, You know, number one, the first important thing is to get a tool that feels good for you. So I like to use therapy balls. I used to use tennis balls and racket balls. I have a whole slew of, um, you know, specially designed therapy balls for use in self-massage. And everyone likes a different amount of pressure. And so the I go into this in this chapter that the key is that you're presenting the massage to your tissues in a way that feels safe for your nervous system. Because anytime the nervous system does not feel safe, it likes to make the muscles contract more as a kind of protective mechanism. So you want to keep that in mind that in self-massage, you're really dealing with your nervous system as much as you're dealing with your tissues. So it needs to feel like something you can relax into. And um, there are so many techniques from head to toe, but ones that I often share with people are for the upper trapezius that and the neck and the you know, top of the shoulders, that coat hanger area that invariably is cranky all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got some some great techniques for that. And I will mention that along with the book coming out in June, I'm actually going to be releasing an online course, a pre-recorded online course that puts into practice a lot of these concepts that I talk about in the book. And it'll have pre-recorded lectures and also a whole bunch of practices. And that's definitely going to be one of them. I'm going to show some techniques there in, um, in that course for self-massage. But there are other ways to learn about it, too. I have a great book by Jill Miller. Jill Miller is the creator of the Yoga Tune-Up brand. She also wrote the foreword for the book. And uh, I love her work. And she's got a book called The Role Model. And it shows you 
just tons of techniques with therapy balls, lots and lots of pictures. And it's a good book kind of for self-study that way. That sounds awesome. And so exciting about the companion online series. It can be so helpful to see things visually, you know, as helpful as the content in your book and as informative as it is. um, A lot of us um, really are visual learners, especially when it comes to doing things physically. You know, I have a hard time um, sometimes understanding instructions about like how to move physically or um, how to contract this or that. And so seeing it in action, I think is really um, helpful and um, makes your content a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Um, so that's awesome. I'm very mm-hmm. much looking forward to that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of switching gears a little bit. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the community about the prevalence of specifically hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Do you have thoughts based on your own practice um, about whether you think hypermobility and HEDS are underdiagnosed Um any general thoughts on prevalence based on what you've seen? Um, I definitely think they're underdiagnosed. I think they're honestly wildly uh, uh, underdiagnosed. That's my thought. I feel like I see it everywhere. I see symptomatic hypermobility all the time, and it's very rare that anyone's been diagnosed with a hypermobility syndrome. So yeah, that's my thought. (laughs) You know, I think, um, I treat hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile EDS under the same umbrella. I kind of consider them synonymous things. I know they're technically not, but I think that we're going to learn in the next 10, 15 years, hopefully sooner, um, how to tease that apart a little bit more and what all the differences actually mean, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that cluster of things is woefully underdiagnosed. And part of what limits people wanting to seek diagnosis is that they just they think it needs to be really, really, really severe before it would be anything diagnosable, right? I just see people suffering for a long time, but they don't realize that their experience, you know, isn't typical. It's valid to want to seek some explanation for all these things. And it doesn't mean you have to be literally falling apart every day, but, you know, this is a diagnosable thing and you can really start to learn tools to manage it. So those are my thoughts about that. Yeah, I, that's very consistent with what I've observed too. I like how you said woefully underdiagnosed. I, I think that is completely true. And I agree, there's this phenomenon that it seems that unless people are in really, really, you know, a, a severe condition, really having trouble functioning, um, it, it's not even on the table or being considered. And it, it, it's unfortunate because in my view, the sooner we learn at an age appropriate time, obviously, you know, probably not after the two year old's first word or whatever, you're hypermobile, um, you know, no, uh, but at an age appropriate time, um, either childhood or adolescence, um, learning about it and learning about it in context that, you know, I, I think um, it can be kind of overwhelming Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. What does that mean? You know, but, mm-hmm. but getting into hypermobility and, oh, okay, my joints stretch a little further. So, you know, that means I, you know, have, I can do these other things, maybe that some other people struggle to, but I also have these um, challenges and, and things I need to look out for. You know, I need to monitor my hydration in my case, you know, pretty closely and just sort of simple things that I think knowledge is really power on. Um, yeah, I agree. I, mean, I have two daughters and, you know, one of the reasons I wanted an official diagnosis is so they're not going to jump through 20 
plus years of hoops and wondering what's going on if they start to, you know, develop some issues, which I imagine Mm -hmm. they probably will at some point, but, you know, not just how to take care of their bodies, but okay. So the electrolytes and the salts and all that kind of stuff and the dizziness and, you know, that's just, I was always dizzy and, you know, I just, I never knew that was not normal. Yeah. And it's knowledge that we can share with our non-hypermobile friends because I've had, you know, friends who I, I think maybe after a little too much time in the sun or a little too much um, imbibing uh, ended up having like POTS type symptoms. And it makes sense that extreme dehydration, you know, w- would, would have that effect. So, you know, I've, I've told friends about, you know, liquid IV and stuff to check into to see if, you know, talk to their doctors, see if that, that would help them. But um, yeah, it's this phenomenon of us having a lot of these issues, but, um, hopefully us bringing more awareness to them, you know, will help a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. um, because these are kind of, you know, the things that affect us ultimately, um, are, are many of them are in the general population. You know, anybody can tear a hip Mm being, you know, we just do it in a lot less, with a lot less fun of a story behind it. (laughs) It seems like, um, but uh, but that that brings me to my next question. What is your assessment of the state of awareness about EDS and hypermobility conditions? Do you think it's gotten better over time, or are we still kind of stuck? Gosh, that's a good question. I feel kind of newish on the whole scene, just because you know I didn't get diagnosed until a couple of years ago. Even though I've I've always, it's always been a topic of interest of mine in the realm of training yoga teachers, the hypermobility, but with this bigger awareness and just thinking back to all the doctors I've been to, all the practitioners and wow, being, you know, a PT and educated about the body, it's, I think it's not great. (laughs) I think it's not great. I don't know any doctor anywhere near here that I can refer my patients to for diagnosis, even for obtaining a clear medical diagnosis that I can't provide as a PT. I mean, I can do a checklist, right? But I can't make a medical diagnosis. I don't have anywhere to send them. The geneticist in town that diagnosed me is lovely. They're wonderful. They don't accept referrals anymore for these conditions because they could not keep up with the volume of referrals. So two things. It's awesome that they had a lot of referrals. That means a lot of you know primary care doctors are sending their patients, are suspecting maybe this person has hypermobile EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder, et cetera. But it was so overwhelming that now the genetics office isn't even taking referrals and um, they're kicking it back to the primary care doctor, which is where it should be. But now those people have got to learn how to make the diagnosis themselves, mm-hmm. you know? So maybe that's an indication of some positive change too. That uh, that situation just in my local area. Uh, I think it's the more people get diagnosed, the more it's on doctors' radars, and the more they're going to be motivated to learn about it. It's simply a learning and awareness issue. It's all it is. Completely agree, um, and that's why I think um, clarity over the diagnoses is important, and getting that awareness to doctors earlier. Um, because yeah, a, a lot of people still struggle with getting accurate diagnoses, and you know this condition. A- Ehlers and Danlos did their work in 1901 and 1908, respectively. You know, it's been a while. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, do you have thoughts yeah. on the current state of research into hypermobility conditions, including HEDS? Uh, what areas would you like to see to see explored further? 
Um, I'm just excited. I've sent my saliva to a couple places. Um, I'm just excited to see what, what gets found out. I think, I think it's more complicated, obviously, than anyone wants it to be. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be searching for a genetic cause of hypermobile EDS, right? And so um, I'm really curious to find out what the overlap is with um, a potential kind of autoimmune process versus a genetic, you know, clear genetic issue and where do those things overlap to kind of express the hypermobile EDS cluster of, of stuff. I think there's some muddy water there that I'm excited to, about finding some clarity on. Um, and then the inflammation issues and is there a genetic predisposition to go in this direction? Is this just purely genetic or how much are environmental factors playing a role in the expression of this? So that's what I'm curious about. I share your curiosity. I, I completely agree. I think the um, the sort of Venn diagram or the, the overlap of um, mast cell issues, hereditary alpha tryptosemia, um, there seems to be a, a lot there. And again, you know, so hard to tell, um, you know, are these things interrelated? Do they happen to occur together? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think getting to the bottom of I, you know, I think mast cell activation was only named as a condition pretty recently. Like I, I want to say 2003, I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, we have a lot to learn for as much as we've learned, um, you know, with science over the last few hundred years, um, there's still a lot of open questions. So I, I share your curiosity. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today, Libby. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and hopefully, you know, this book leads to a larger discussion about, the role of yoga and hypermobility and helps to raise awareness about hypermobility and, um, you know, the, the possibilities for people with, with these conditions. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah, me too. I want to say just a quick thing too, is, you know, I mentioned the smaller and slower in the asana section. There's also a stability and talking about posture. And then the, the pieces in the, in the other elements of yoga that and the meditative practices and the practices for calming the nervous system so that we can, go in and meditate, you know, that is just so critical for hypermobile people because they're often dealing with attention issues and, you know, nervous systems that are really uh, spinning out on the sympathetic arousal. And these are tools that can be so helpful at really shifting the habits of the brain and, and the connections with the body. And so I think that's just another realm where there's so much fruitful, stuff in the yoga tradition to offer specifically for this population. So I hope that people will find the book and I hope they'll read it and enjoy it and um, get in touch with me if they have any comments or questions about it. I'm excited to hear what comes out of people's perspectives. Absolutely. I think that part of learning to calm the, um, or, or activate, I guess the parasympathetic nervous system um, is something that's so helpful to us because a lot of us spend so much of our time in sympathetic um, activation mode. And that can be really stressful, especially when you're staying there for really long periods of time. Um, so, yeah, exactly. yeah, thank you so much for all your research, your hard work that went into this book. Um, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Um, thanks to our, all of our listeners to joining us as well. And as always, feel free to reach out and email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, comments, 
feedback, or suggestions for future episode ideas. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.